For our time in the disciplines this morning, we're going to be looking at verse 13. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be tying um, our time together in the Word and our time together with the Lord in prayer with uh, our ability to think rightly and to hope rightly in the circumstances that the Lord brings to us. Um, Maybe you had a really good week this week. Maybe it was a really, really prosperous week and the Lord was with you and just gave you success in what you're doing. And, and if so, I'm, I'm very, very thankful for that. And, and uh, we all would be. And maybe you had a more challenging week this week where things didn't turn out the way that you, you might have hoped that they would. Whether it's in your own health or your own vocation or your family relationships or whatever else. Um, what I want to do this morning is just spend a little bit of time talking about what happens when we spend time alone with the Lord um, and how that feeds into our ability to think rightly about the circumstances that the Lord gives us. So I'm going to read verse 13, and um, let's just take a look at a couple things. What we do is we want to be looking at the word hope, and look at how the word hope is attached to God, and it's also something that must be a part of the believer, it must be in the believer. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So take out all the, um, what we're going to do is focus on the verb and the subject and the noun and the direct object here. And it is, may, may God fill you with all joy and peace. May God fill you with joy and peace. So what we see here is that, we'll take a look at who God is first. God is the God of hope. And what hope here is, is, as we know now, it's a, a confidence in a certain future event. It's not a hope. It's not a wishful thought. It's not a, a worldly hope. It's a confidence in a certain future event. And that is what God gives. He is the God who provides that because he is the one who, who orders everything. Um, may that God fill the believer. Paul's writing to the church in Rome. He's writing to his, his Christian brothers and sisters. And he says, may that God fill you with joy and peace in believing. The joy and the peace is contingent upon belief. It's contingent upon an understanding of the gospel and an understanding of God's character, an understanding that he is the God of hope. So may he do that. May God fill you with joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God fills us with joy and peace so that we will abound in hope. We will abound in a confidence in what is coming next. We will abound in a confidence in what is coming next. And the way that we abound in that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't abound in that confidence uh, apart from the inner working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When you sit down with your Bible open, when you close your eyes and pray, whether your time alone with the Lord is during your lunch break every day, or whether it's how you start your morning and you start your day, or whether it's how you end your day, or maybe it's a combination of all of those things, um, what you are doing is you are keeping in step with the Holy Spirit that God put in you, that God used to regenerate you. Uh, because the Holy Spirit that is within you believes and is, the, is working in concert with the God of hope and the God of truth, when you're reading scripture, you're praying through scripture, you're confessing sin, you're doing all of those things, you are aligning yourself in truth with the spirit that is in you. 
And that is the spirit that, um, in verse 13, allows you to abound in hope in your circumstances. So if you had a great week this week, praise God. Things went well. Maybe you had a week of vacation from your job. If you did, I'm really thankful and really glad for you. Maybe you had a very difficult week. Maybe sometime this month you, you had to travel and you had hard times. Um, this is why it's important for us to read our Bibles every day as regularly as we can. This is why it's important for us to have a prayer life that's that's rich, growing deeper, and growing more powerful and more substantial, is so that we can remain in step with the Holy Spirit that is within us. We can be informing our mind and our hearts of the truth that the Spirit used to regenerate us, that the truth of who we are in Christ and the fact that our citizenship is not here in this world, it is in the the age to come and in the, the kingdom to come. That is what our citizenship is in. We are we are temporary sojourners here and maybe we've got five years to go, maybe we've got 55 years to go, whatever it is the Lord knows and we don't. Um, but it is when you spend time regularly in the word that you're thinking biblically, you're informing yourself of truth so that when the circumstances of life come to you, um, you can be full of hope even in the challenging circumstances because you're just in line with God's design for you and you're thinking biblically. So my, my encouragement to you guys is keep reading your Bibles, keep praying, keep meditating on the Word uh, because it will serve you well when things go really well and it will serve you well when things don't go as well. Um, that will be the case. Uh, I had a week this week that was one of the more challenging ones that I've had in, in my 29 years in the engineering industry. And... Um, I came to realize something that I, at a deeper level than I've, I've realized before. Um, you know how you we've all believed in God's sovereignty in all circumstances? Um, I think what I've come to realize at a, a deeper level is that we're never in control of our circumstances. We're never in control. Um, and the Lord uses, I want to be careful how I say this, the Lord uses the challenging circumstances to show us that He is always in control and he is reminding us periodically that we're never in control. I want to ask you guys to turn over to Proverbs 16. Yeah, we can make our plans. We can we can line things up. We can set things forth. I want us to see a couple of things here. Um, you can make your best laid plans. You can prepare well. You can anticipate well. You can save properly. You can do uh, everything that's wise and everything that's good. Um, the plans of the heart belong to a man, Proverbs 16.1, comma, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Uh, we, we had plans for the week when we started our work week this week and got in your car and you went to work on Monday morning or whatever you do. Um, you have plans and the Lord has another plan and he is working and he is working through circumstances, positive and otherwise, to steer the course of our lives the way that he has already decreed will happen. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that, that God has prepared works for us to walk in. And sometimes they're really, really good works that are satisfying and profitable and prosperous, and sometimes they're not. Um, so what I want to just do is, is tie that back to our time alone with the Lord. When you're reading your Bible, and you're reading through your reading plan, you get to Proverbs and your reading plan or whatever else, um, you're reminded of these truths. And these truths are the things that give you of the hope and the confidence of what God is, has in store for you, even if um, things don't seem to add up or they don't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, I want to encourage you guys with that.
So hopefully that's an encouragement to you to just keep plugging away. Um, if you're in a really good season, the Lord has you in a sweet spot right now, praise God. The time is probably coming when you won't be. For one reason or another, everybody here knows that we have good seasons and we have seasons that are more challenging. And um, it is it is in the seasons when things are well that you are actually equipping yourself and preparing yourself for um, the season that the Lord has coming. That, that for one reason or another, He has decreed is the right the right thing for us. So keep reading your Bible, keep praying regularly, keep dwelling on His Word, and informing yourself so that you are. Uh, ready for the circumstances the Lord gives to you and you can walk through them with confidence and hope and joy and peace um, until the day that God takes you to be with him so talk just a little bit here and then we'll pray before we look at the passage um, really the, the the basics of build and and even the basics of wellspring for your wives for your daughters um, for your mothers whoever's might be in it is, is really reduced down to three primary disciplines that, that need to be true for all Christians. Uh, and you know them, it's the first three. It's you know shepherding your heart well to um, the God of the Word as you meet with Him in His Word and you're developing your relationship with Him, you're cultivating a relationship with Him, you're pursuing Him. You're not just having a quiet time, but you're meeting with the Lord. That's the idea, discipline one. Um, of course, then the first place that you want to take that uh, that effect is into your household. So you want to shepherd your household. You want to be that kind of man in your household. You want to impact your relationship with your family that you live with. If it's your wife, your wife, your kids, if it's your parents, if it's your siblings, whoever. If it's your roommates as a single guy, you want to bring that to bear on your household. Um, a gospel-influenced heart and mindset into that home. Um, and then, of course, you have ministry outside of that. You have ministry in the church, and you have ministry outside of the church. Um, and so you want to be uh, very gospel-focused in everywhere you go outside of your household. Um, as you do that, um, that's, what, that's just what it means to be a Christian. That, that should be what it means to be. That is what it means to be a Christian. Uh, it can't be less than that. It's got to be that. And so um, as you focus on that, God will, uh, regardless of what God's intent is for you in life and in the church, ministry-wise, regardless, you will be a blessing, you will be a sharp instrument in his hand, and God will be pleased to use that kind of man to use you in any variety of ministry inside the church, outside the church. And it just so happens that God might also use that kind of discipline in your life uh, to help qualify you uh, according to character qualifications in either the deacon list or the elder qualification list. Um, and so it's not we're doing build because we need elders. Or it's not we're doing build because we, we're not thinking about elders, we just want to disciple men. It, it, those two things are not opposed to each other. They're not um, separated from each other. We do this because it's right to do we want to disciple men. We want you to learn how to disciple and discipline your own heart in it. But also, God is, I think, pleased to use something like this as his Holy Spirit makes overseers in the church, Acts 20. Uh, we'll look at that in a moment. Uh, it's a way for you to participate maybe with what God is doing. Maybe it, being an elder is not on your radar. Maybe there's no desire in your heart for that, and that's okay. But you're a Christian man, and you must be this. And I must be this. And... 
If you look down through these qualifications in chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1, you will find that you can very easily take any one of them and slot them into one of the three or more than one of the three. Is it a character issue for the man? Uh, well, that, that's what kind of a relationship does he have with the Lord, right? Is it, does he need to be a one-woman man, or does he need to manage his own household well? That's a household shepherding issue. Um, what's he like with people? Is he peaceable, or is he a fighter? What's he like? Does he, does he, uh, what's he like with people as he's engaging with them? So any one of the qualifications can fall into any one of the first three disciplines. So it's good for you if you're a Christian man and God never moves you into any qualified office in the church. You'll be a sharp instrument in his hand. It is good because God may also use this to help make you a qualified man one day. Okay? So with that, let's read First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and we'll pray. Paul says to Timothy, who is at the church in Ephesus, it's about AD 65, he says, this is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The devil mentioned twice in the last two. That's interesting, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe that... um, Your word says that the Holy Spirit makes overseers. Um, And Lord, we also know that he does not do that against our will, but he shapes us and fashions us, and we get to participate in that as well. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would make overseers at Grace Bible Church, and that your spirit would keep overseers as overseers at Grace Bible Church. And I pray for these men that you would help them to just grow in their disciplines, Lord. And if you never take these men and um, shape them into an elder, Lord, I pray that these qualifications would um, be something that they would look at and long for more in their life anyway, just to be a mature man. Thank you for this time, Lord. Bless um, our study of your word, Lord. Let it go deep into our hearts and minds. In Christ's name, amen. Verse 1. There's a trustworthy statement. You can count on this. If any man aspires to the office of overseer. Verse 2, an overseer then. Let's just start with that word overseer, and then we'll kind of make sure we get all the other words. There's a family of words you need to put together when you think about eldering in a church. Here are your three words, overseer, elder, and pastor. Those three uh, titles offices do not describe three different men. They describe one man. They describe one office. Um, you see the word overseer here in verses 1 and 2, as you can, uh, as I just pointed out. Over in chapter 5, verse 17, uh, Paul says there, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, etc. Uh, verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. 
Paul is not talking to one group of men who are overseers in chapter 3 and then a different group separate from that in chapter 5. The overseers are elders. Um, there's another word, pastor, that's in um, Ephesians 4.11. Um, Jesus gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. That's the word for shepherd. Okay. Now, um, let me take you out of First Timothy and go to Acts 20 for just a minute because I want you to see this. There's one passage that really pulls all three of these words together clearly uh, in, a, in a really helpful way. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Acts 20. Paul's at the end of his third missionary trip. He's passing uh, through the, uh, the Ephesus area, minor Asia Minor, Turkey. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He stops in Miletus. That's a port city. Ephesus is inland a little bit. And he doesn't want to go into Ephesus because he knows he's going to get snagged by them. And he's, not going to be, he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem for the Passover. Um, and so he calls for the elders to come to the port city. So from Miletus, Acts 20, verse 17, he sent to Ephesus, the church that he had been at longer than any other church, and he called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, and then he gives this great teaching. Now look one of the things he says to them in verse 28. You elders that I drew to myself here, you elders, be on guard for yourselves, elders, and for all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you elders. That's who I'm talking to. He made you overseers. You see, there's a second word. The same men who are elders are overseers. And what did the Holy Spirit make these elders who are overseers to do? To what? To shepherd, which is the verbal form of pastor. So, Elders are overseers who what? Pastor or shepherd. An elder is an overseer, is a pastor. This is the way your New Testament holds these together. Um, and so that's just an important part. I want you to make sure that you grasp this. You can go back to uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 now. And, and even in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, uh, Paul easily back and forth goes from uh elder to overseer. Appoint elders in the church um, and, and do the things that I left you to do there. Uh, an overseer then must be above reproach, he says, talking about the same group. Now, an overseer, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work. It's work. Being an overseer is a work to do. It involves a task, and the task is primarily shepherding. Yes, you make decisions. Yes, you must administrate and do things like that. But the task is primarily shepherding, overseeing the flock, being an overseer, um, caring for others as they grow toward Christ and Christ's likeness. Um, and Paul says that is not just any kind of work. It is a fine work to do. That word means it's an excellent work. It's a worthwhile work. It's a noble, good work. Listen, there is nothing more precious to God than the sheep that his son purchased with his own blood. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And so then caring for those sheep is not just any kind of work. It's fine work to do. It's excellent work to do. It's noble work to do in the church. And if any man aspires to that, it is a fine work he desires. Aspires and desires. Two internal motivational type of words. Two different kinds of words to indicate internal motivation, desire and aspiration for the work. Now, what if Paul had said, it is a trustworthy statement 
If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do, period. And then verse 8. Deacons, likewise. What if there wasn't verses 2 through 7? Uh, Paul would be telling us then that really, primarily, all that matters is desire for the office or aspiration for the office. The church then would just have to base their selection of elders on the basis of if a man longs for it or wants it or desires it. They would only measure by internal desire. Um, But Paul provides for us actually six more verses in this chapter to help us understand what true Holy Spirit-given desire and aspiration for the office of overseer looks like. Um, The Holy Spirit, if he makes overseers, he indeed then does give them desire to do it, okay, to shepherd the flock. But that same Holy Spirit, through Paul, gives us now uh, six more verses of qualifications to look at uh, in a man that will affirm that the Holy Spirit indeed inspired the man toward the office of elder. So listen, what am I, what's the point I'm trying to make? Desire is important for the office. It certainly is. You wouldn't want a man to shepherd the flock who really did not want to. Okay? Uh, it says if a man desires it. It's a fine word. Uh, he doesn't say that a man must desire it. So no, not every man is going to desire it. Some men will not desire it and it will be a sinful not desiring of it. Some men will not desire it and they just it's pleasing to the Lord that they don't desire it. Okay? No, you, you do not have to desire to be an elder. Should you desire these qualities? I'll show you about that in a minute more, a little bit more. That's a different, that's an important uh, difference to uh, understand. Um, Desire is not enough on its own. It must have an accompanying moral character qualification with it in order to be an elder. So desire is to be tested against, to be tested by the character qualifications that follow here. Uh, In other words, how do you know if a man's desire for the office is really a a Holy Spirit-given desire? Well, the Spirit of God will help him become qualified, and that will help you measure it. Or maybe his desire is still in process, and he's not quite there yet. Okay? Um, Now, you've got these two words, aspires and desires. They're really synonyms. They're almost interchangeable. They're strong terms, strong terms for desiring, for striving for, for longing for. Let me show you how this first word, aspires, can also be used in the same letter. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. Here's what Paul says. He uses the same word, aspires, except the translators don't use it as aspire here. Chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by, here it is, here's the very same word, longing for it. Now, what kind of a longing for the money is this? What kind of a desire is that? It's a sinful desire. Uh, And so what this teaches you, if you remember from last time our hermeneutics lesson, what determines the meaning of a word primarily is context. And so depending on the context, um, this this strong longing can either be something really good, like aspiring for the office of elder, and that's why the New American Standard translators translated as aspire, because that's positive, and over here, longing for it clearly is, is a negative way of, of looking at this strong longing. So it, it, the point is strong desire, strong desire. 
So when you think of the Holy Spirit making men overseers in the church, Acts 20, 28, you shouldn't be surprised that the desire within those men will actually be strong desires. Not kind of like, yeah, I can, I can take it or leave, eldering. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I want to. No, no, I want to. I want to. I long for it. I have a, a passion for it. Um, so that's verse 1. It's a fine work he desires to do. Verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. That is the banner qualification that puts all of the others in its shade underneath it. It's an umbrella qualification. And that means then the way to measure if a man is above reproach is actually through those specific measurements underneath it. Okay? Above reproach means to, to be free from any offense or disgraceful blight of character or conduct, particularly described in verses 2 to 7. Um, no blight there. Um, it's a... The man is above, just let those two words help you figure out, above reproach. Reproach is down here. It's jumping for him, trying to get him, but he's above it. It can't get to him. Okay? He is beyond reproach. It can't reach him in his life. It is not sinless perfection. Obviously, that man is in heaven at the right hand of God, and he is not here. But the man is to be exemplary. Exemplary. Let me give you a, an idea here of how these qualifications, how you should think about these qualifications. Go over to Philippians chapter 2 real quick. Philippians 2, verse 15. Actually, back up to verse 14. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Paul says to the church in Philippi, a church that he had a very, very special relationship with from his um, second missionary journey on. They were very committed to him. He says to the church at large, men and women, boys and girls, believers in Jesus Christ. He says to them, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you all as the church will prove yourselves to be what? Blameless. It's another family uh, word in the, in the family of being above reproach. Blameless and innocent children of God, what? Above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, etc. So let me ask you a question. Are you supposed to, as a Christian man right now, not an elder, are you supposed to be above reproach? Yes. So should you aspire or should you want to be above reproach like an elder is? Yes. Of course. You're a Christian. And so you desire that. Okay? So then what is the difference between an elder's being above reproach and just the believers in the church generally being above reproach? What you, yeah. Okay, that would be certainly a part of it. You would want that to be attached to it, right? Let me show you guys. Uh, oh, wait, that's great. Go to First uh, Peter chapter 5. I'll show you. And then you, this will give you a help, helpful paradigm to think about all of these other qualifications for the elder. First Peter chapter 5, verse 3. Peter says that the elders among you are not to be lording it over those allotted to your charge, but these elders are to be what? Proving themselves to be examples to the flock. So the whole church is to be above reproach. And how is an elders above reproach status um, 
fit in with that? Well, he proves to be an example of being above reproach to the flock. Every single one of these qualities that you're going to see, except for some of the um, skills, able to teach, every single one of the character qualities, um, you are called to also in other verses in in the New Testament. So then what makes an elder different is he proves to be an example of that character quality for the church. Okay? Not all of us are exemplary in being peaceable. Not all of us are exemplary in in being gentle. Uh, Not all of us are exemplary in being above reproach. But the elders are to be exemplary in that and lead the way. It's not that, well, I'm really glad I'm not an elder because then I don't have to be above reproach. (laughs) Well, that's for him to be gentle. I'm not an elder. Right? No, we all are, but we are to be able to look at elders who are proving themselves to be examples of the flock in each of these character qualifications. Gabe, do you have a question? Or Just a quick question. Yeah. I've read that verse plenty of times. What does that mean, lording over, like in the original context? Just something that. Yeah. It means to be domineering, using your authority in a way that you're, uh, you're oppressive with it. It'd be the opposite of Jesus saying, uh, take my yoke upon you for I'm gentle and humble in heart. I, I got a yoke for you and you need to put it on. Put it on. I, I'm gentle and I'm, I'm humble in heart and lording it over is not that. So the elder is above criticism. The way that he lives is simply out of reach of criticism. Uh, he's a man who's marred by no disgrace. That does not mean that he never sins. It does not mean that when he does sin, it doesn't impact people's minds. It means that there's more of a Teflon kind of character that it hits. I confess I'm so sorry. And the body goes, yeah, I get it. You know, there's, it's not sinlessness. It can't be. It's not. Okay. Um, in a church, let, let's think then a little bit about this. In a church, who gets to determine if a man is above reproach? Does the man himself alone determine it? I'm above approach. Hey, everybody, I'm above approach. <laughs> now, should he think he is? Yes. He needs to think about that the right way, right? But he's not primarily relying on his own self-assessment. Um, the, this qualification, along with the others, all of them rest in the eyes of the imperfect beholders around him. Um, who is the only man who knows everything? Christ. And he is not physically here at Grace Bible Church. And so he does not know you. He's not here to explain to us what he sees perfectly about you or about me. The only ones at this church are men who are not, and women, who are not omniscient who cannot know you perfectly. If only God had thought about that before he said, you need to pick men who are above reproach and have all these qualities. No, God did know that. And that's God's design, is that imperfect, incomplete perceptions of you would be the ones that God would use to make a man an overseer. It's an imperfect world. It's an imperfect church overseen by perfect knowledge from God who knows this and so there has to be a level of understanding of that if, if imperfect perceptions around you uh, are not ready to affirm a man to be an elder you can't say well you just don't know me if you really knew me well uh, I, 
I, okay, yeah, I need to know you better. I want to. We are. Um, but I'll never know you. In other words, you have to be okay with entrusting your qualification assessment into the hands of people who will never know you completely, perfectly. They're going to miss some things about you. Sometimes that's unfortunate and it's really hard. Sometimes um, elders miss it and somebody gets and becomes an elder and they shouldn't. And that's just what happens. This side of heaven. That's life under the sun. So who gets to determine if a man is above reproach? Primarily, <coughs> primarily the elders of the church are the ones who determine with help from the body. If the elder, let me, let me help you put a contrast between the body and the elders. It's not solely the elders. I don't care, church, what you say. We're making this man an elder. If the church is like, you know, starts pitchforks and torches, that's not good, right? But it's also not a, a, it's not a congregational rule thing either. The elders have to work carefully back and forth with the body. That's why we have the process that we do where we pick a man, we select a man, we pursue him, we investigate him, and it's a long process, and we then come to you. You're aware of all that all the time. We're not doing that in a dark corner somewhere where you can't see it. Um, we then finally, before we make a man an elder, we set him before you and say, tell us what you think. And then we assess from you what is going on in a man. The bottom line point I'm trying to make, all of that is imperfect perceptions, incomplete perceptions of a man. And you have to be, men have to be okay with knowing that the people who are going to make decisions about me are people who do not know me perfectly or completely. They just can't, no matter how well I get to know them. They can't see my soul. And so yet that can't be a reason why you would push against somebody. You don't know my soul. Um, it doesn't make any sense. All right, let's move on. Um, the husband of one wife. Uh, if you were to look in Titus chapter 1, this is also the very first qualification on the list right after the summary umbrella qualification of being above reproach in Titus 1.6. Um, that's interesting, isn't it? That Paul would say that you know an overseer or an elder has to be above reproach, has to be the husband of one wife. He says that both times in both lists. Um, this was a real challenge in the early church, a, a problem, a concern in the early church. The believers came out of a heavy pagan life where sexual immorality was rampant. Um, and so the elder had to be a man who stood out stark and clear from that in order to be exemplary for the rest of the believers. Again, it's not that, wow, I'm glad I'm not an elder because then, then I'd have to be a one-woman man. That's not it, right? The point is, the point is, the elders have to be exemplary in this. They have to be able to lead the way and show this. And one woman man is Paul's way of describing that kind of man. Here's the, the easiest way I think to think about one woman man. Singularly focused on one woman. Singularly focused on one woman, and that one woman is his wife. If he's married. Singularly focused on one woman. Um, the description is about much more than how many wives he has. Uh, before we get any further in this elder selection process, please tell me how many wives you have. Oh, I have only one. Perfect, you're qualified. That's not, that's not, now listen, if he says two, don't make him an elder. Okay, right? Because um, that would be bad. That's not a one woman man. But it's more than sorting through polygamy, right? Um, a single man can um, and must be this way, but he's just not married to that one woman yet. 
So the elder is to be a one-woman man in the sense that he's completely satisfied, singularly focused in his romance, singularly focused in his emotional attachments, singularly focused in his sexual desire to one woman, and that one woman is his wife. And so it's important to understand then, guys, that this is not just committing adultery. It is possible to not be singularly focused but be married to only one woman but not be a one-woman man. Do you understand that? And so you must work on this very carefully in your life. Um, and so, if a man isn't married, then what does that mean? What does a single, what does it mean? It means that uh, he has only one girlfriend at a time and um, he doesn't, no, it doesn't mean that. It means that he's thinking, I, I want to be a man someday if God brings me a wife. I want to be a man who uh, is singularly focused with my sexual desires. Right now there is no woman, so I will not just give my sexual thoughts and lusts away to anyone. I will hold them. I will control them so that when God does highlight that woman in my life and bring her to my life and lead me to her, I will be singularly... I mean, it requires a lot of self-control. You can look for the spirit of this. You can look for the root of it in a single man, and it must be there. If he is focus on one woman at a time, but goes serial from one woman to the next, and there's some sexual immorality in that, but only one at a time, that's not what this is, okay? So if you're single, it means you can still be striving for this. Uh, Gentiles in the first century would have found this qualification to be utterly repugnant. What are you talking about? Why would you Christians be this way? Uh, yeah, I'm married, but I also got... Sally and Susie on the side. And even the Jews in Jesus' day would have found this repugnant because they could divorce over burnt toast, and they did, um, and moved from one woman to the next when they were tired of her. Um, I'll come back to this one. It just means a, a man with a wife. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's pretty intuitive for... A, what it is. It's not a, a necessarily a real um, special only, it's not man. It's, um, it's, a, it's a husband idea. Um, I'll come back to some things uh, on regards to that if we have some time at the end, maybe some, some encouragement to give you on that. Let's move on to uh, the next three. Temperate, prudent, respectable. Temperate, prudent, and respectable. I need to get back to 1 Timothy 3 myself, make sure I'm there. Some see these three as connected together. There's nothing in the grammar that would indicate that necessarily. It would be more of a logical connection, and I'll kind of explain it to you. I'm, I'm persuaded by it. I think it's interesting. Um, temperate, um, re prudent, respectable. Um, temperate and prudent certainly are synonyms together. Almost, I think it's almost difficult to distinguish really between them. Uh, it might just be Paul going uh, smart, intellectual, um, you know, trying to put two words together that are very similar, um, that it would be difficult to distinguish between them. Temperate um, means not easily carried away spiritually into error, not being easily carried away into trends, not being easily carried away by appetites, not easily being carried away. Uh, it's a man not given to excess. He's moderate. He's watchful so that he just doesn't just run off. Um, 
it would certainly mean he needs to be that way mentally. It would certainly mean he needs to be that way emotionally. Uh, there's a degree of self-control mentally, emotionally, doctrinally. Um, doctrinal self-control, that then, what does that do? If you have doctrinal self-control, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you are a theological squirrel, right? You, you, if you don't have kids who've seen squirrel, it's a, what, a, what does a dog do? A dog is with you for the moment until there's a what? Squirrel, and they're gone. You cannot be that way theologically if you're going to be an elder. Interested by anything that just kind of pops up and catches your attention, that you're self-controlled. I, I stay here. I may see it, but I'm not moving from where I'm at immediately. i got to give us some thought. What are you talking about? It has to be that way doctrinally. Um, you have to be so internally committed to truth that you can't easily be swayed and carried off into questionable arenas. It, it involves the idea of self-mastery. How might you be able to measure yourself in this? Well, ask yourself, how swept up have you ever been by faddish trends? Faddish authors. The newest book that's out. The newest um, philosophy of ministry that's out about what to do. The newest approach to, to, to missions. The newest approach to the atonement. Or, you know, whatever trend that comes. If, if you're a guy that, like, runs after it and pick it up and champion it and then go, eh, maybe not. And then you come back. Uh, that's evidence that you need to grow in some self-control. That doesn't mean you shouldn't read other things. It means you need to be more measured in how you approach those things. Self-control, level-headed. Ideas don't just make you rush off no matter what they are. Prudent is very similar. In fact, um, in Titus, it's found over and over and over this word. And for whatever reason, the New Testament uh, translators in Titus, um, for the New American Standard, translated as sensible. It's the same word that you find in Titus chapter um, 1, verse 8 for the elder. He must be sensible. In chapter 2, verse 2, in Titus, for the older men. And in chapter 2, verse 5, for the younger women in the church. It's, again, so what you find here is not just the elders are supposed to be sensible. Whew, I'm glad I'm not an elder because then I'd have to be sensible. <laughs> no, um, the old men are supposed to be that way in the church. The younger women are supposed to be that way in the church. And the elders are supposed to be that way. So what's the difference between the elder sensibility and the rest of the churches? Again, it must be exemplary for them in that, um, that quality. Um, that this means very similarly, he doesn't run to the edges or the extremes in his mind. He avoids the extremes. The first response is not always wah the edge, okay. No matter what it is. Um, now there are all kinds of impulses in your life then that you need to be watching over in regards to this. Um, you obviously have sinful impulses, fleshly impulses, worldly impulses that would make you move from the center and run to the edge. You have to watch over those things carefully. You also are a creature without necessarily sin. You get hungry. You need sleep. Um, it is possible to take those creaturely impulses and not watch over them carefully and run off and just no control over eating, no control over sleeping, uh, not sleeping enough, sleeping way too much, whatever. You have to watch over creaturely impulse. You need to be sensible. This is a great word to use over. Am I being sensible right now about how I'm eating, about how I'm drinking, about how I'm whatever? Um, you have to watch over ideological impulses, ideas. I need to not run off to the extremes immediately. Do I have... Um, methodological. I, I'm an elder. I need to be thinking about how we should do gospel biblical ministry. 
Um, do I just run to the edge all the time? Am I the guy that everybody's trying to lasso and pull back? Um, you don't want to run to extremes. One commentator said, how shall I be able to rule over others if I have not full power and command of myself? Um, need to be a man who doesn't run to the extremes. Now, temperate and prudent, very similar um, um, internal motivations, internal issues to deal with. Let's talk about respectable then. Out of these three terms, this one's probably the most externally rooted. Um, perhaps um, in this sense that temperate and prudent are more internal descriptions and perhaps respectable is what other people might conclude on the outside about a man who is inwardly temperate and prudent. Um, respectable means having characteristics or qualities that evoke admiration or delight in others. That's what it means to be respectable. Um, it, you have qualities about yourself that evoke admiration or delight. It, it's an expression from somebody else of high regard for the man. And it probably includes the idea of a well-assembled living. Living that is just well-assembled, so well-ordered, so disciplined, so temperate, so sensible, um, that it evokes respect. I admire that in that guy. Wow. He just, he's just steady. Um, what would be the opposite of respectable? It would be... Uh, there is nothing about that man that I want to be. His life is not put together. It, he is, um, he, he's not in control of himself. Uh, there's nothing to admire in that. Or there's nothing to admire in me. I'm not that man yet, or whatever. Okay? Respectable. So you can see how those three might be linked together. Um, let's talk about hospitable. He must be hospitable. Uh, let me give you the first century setting and then we can move into what our culture, our Christian culture, even thinks of being hospitable. In the first century, primarily what the what the what it meant was to take in Christian strangers. Uh, if you take down the breakdown of the word, it's literally stranger lover. The elder must be a man who loves strangers. But primarily it was Christian strangers. And let me get, help you understand that. It wasn't so much first and foremost... Uh, your own Christian friends at your church that you loved and brought into your home. It was a Christian you hadn't, you'd never met before and they are coming through town. Now, the meaning is rooted in the first century's spread of the gospel. Let me help you understand some things timing-wise. Nero burned Rome and by the end of late AD 64, he needed somebody to be the scapegoat for it and he wasn't able to persuade uh, the way that he wanted to, and so he picked a group of people to be the scapegoat, to blame, and it was the Christians by late AD 64. And so persecution in Rome, the capital of the whole Roman Empire, broke out against the Christians. He, he burnt many of them at the stake. He put them on poles, doused them in oil, and lit them on fire for his garden parties. So he did. And so many of those Christians in Rome scattered. Now, Timothy is in Ephesus, which is a major city that mirrors and reflects Rome. And so whatever's going on in Rome, the major cities in the Roman Empire would reflect that. It is now a year after that. It's AD 65. And so certainly a year of time has taken place where Christians are on the run that produced um, refugees, 
It also produced missionaries who were running across the Roman Empire just to, to find a place to live and to bring the gospel. And so what must an elder in a church be? These people would be coming through town. The first person to be exemplary was to be the elder. Come stay in my home. You will find my home a place of refuge for you, stranger that I love. Who's a Christian? Okay, that was the idea. Uh, you can even see this in Third John if you read that, uh, understanding what was going on uh, as John writes even towards the end of the first century. Um, you're going to find this qualification uh, for all of the church in Romans chapter 12, verse 13. You'll find it in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 for the church. You'll find it in 1 Peter 4, 9 for the church. So again, the church was to be this way. The church was to be this way, but an elder was especially to be exemplary in it for the church. Does that make sense? So when we think of hospitality today, what do we think of? Probably not that exactly, but it's not wrong to open your home to your friends and church and have them come over and be hospitable. But maybe there's a dimension we can pull into our hospitality that I want my home to be a place of refuge for a Christian, that they would find refreshment in my home, under my care, in such a way that they would want to go out from my home and even be more ready to bring the gospel to bear on where they live. Maybe we can add that dimension more into our hospitality uh, as we think about that way. In other words, for an elder, his home is supposed to be a, a sharp tool for him to use. For all of us, right? But for an elder especially. All right, he is then to be able to teach, verse 3. Um, sorry, last one in verse 2. Able to teach. Um, that is not a character quality. It is a skill. It is a skill. In other words, not being able to teach is not a sign of ungodliness. I can't teach, and so I'm such an ungodly man. That's not it at all. Um, we're talking about a skill here. And this, what's really interesting is this skill is um, submerged in, uh, embedded in a list with character qualifications surrounding it. And I just think it's interesting that God takes a skill and he doesn't extract it from character and move character aside and put skill over here so that we could put any space between them. Because oftentimes this is what happens. A guy just loves to teach a man. He, just, he, he can be a truth dump and he can just tell you everything about the Greek and the Hebrew and he just loves to do that. And the guy, nobody can stand him because his character is separate from that. God doesn't do that. He takes the character or he takes the skill and he embeds it in the midst of character because God doesn't want you to be able to drive a semi between them, not even a piece of paper between them. Okay? So it's interesting where he puts it. The skill is not to be separated from character. It is not enough if you are able to, to be able to teach uh, is not merely having profound biblical knowledge. That will really help you if you are going to teach. But it's more than having profound biblical knowledge. It's not enough to just be um, a really, uh, the kind of communicator that people just love to listen to. And we, you can all think of people who are that way that are, it's just engaging to listen. That guy's, I, I, I can listen to that guy tell any story. It, it's more than that also, okay? Um, it has to be the ability 
to um, impart meaning from God's word in a way that ends up being fruitful, being effective in a person's life. Um, it's not backing up the dump truck of truth and just dumping truth on people. Anybody can do that. Um, it has to be the ability to be able to impart truth in a way that the, 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 the church goes, oh, yeah, I see that, and that there's even fruitfulness. So not just effective, but fruitfulness. Fruitfulness would make it effective. Um, it's interesting, this would be the only qualification that can actually be commanded against in Scripture. Do you think about that? What does James 3.1 say? Do not let many of you become teachers. Can you imagine if you read anywhere else in the New Testament, let not many of you become peaceable. Uh, of course, you wouldn't command against the character qual quality, but this is a skill that um, more than elders will have it. It's not a gift or a skill set that's uh, um, restricted only to eldering, but you need to be really careful. Why? Because you can have the skill, but not have the right character, and you can really be a damage then to people. And so that's why I think Paul has it embedded right in the midst of it. Okay? So both qualities are, can be acquired, right? I mean, like what, what? characters, uh, I mean, to be a good teacher, you can acquire that through yeah. hard work. But what about character? I mean, character Absolutely. Yeah, I, look, every single person in this room, every single person in this room is still working on their character. Um, some people will um, sharpen their abilities to teach, but you will never want them to teach people in larger settings. Maybe in some settings, uh, uh, listen, a dad better be able to teach in his home and care for his family. But that doesn't mean that, and he may, and he should grow in that and learn how to develop that. But that doesn't mean that he will one day be an elder, able to teach. Uh, this is this is more for shepherding. Um, by the way, able to teach. You want to know what that really looks like? Go to Titus chapter one, verse nine, and it's this. I mean, when it, it says able to teach, you're probably just talking more about being in front of a. Not necessarily. Read through, read through Acts, and watch how um, watch how Paul, Timothy, uh, Priscilla, Aquila, watch how they use the Word of God. Sometimes that's uh, in front of the synagogue. Um, uh, sometimes it's in front of your enemies. Sometimes it's in front of the church. Sometimes it's late at night and there's a guy up on a windowsill and he falls off. Um, sometimes it's hey Apollos, come here. There's some things you don't get yet. So it's not it's not a, a a preaching public. It better include that, too. But here's what it is more specifically. It's not about an arena. It's this Titus one verse nine. The elder must be one who's holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to do what. You have to hold on to that word in such a way that you can do two things. One's positive and one's negative. To exhort in sound doctrine. That's the positive. You've got. A, a fledgling church, you've got young believers, you've got people who need to have uh, right teaching given to them so they know how to live their life. 
And an elder needs to be able to exhort them with healthy teaching so that the direction they're looking, they can keep going. But then also, if you're going to be an elder, you've got to use the word of God in another way, in a, in a way that's more negative. Not negative of what he's doing, but involves a negative setting. And that is the last part of verse 9. And to refute those who contradict. You're going to have some people in the church who are just going to step and go, that sound teaching? No. And an elder needs to say, um, I refute you. I'm holding fast the word. This is what enables me to refute you. Because you are a contradictor. You are the type of guy in chapter 3 who, um, uh, where is it? Reject a factious man, verse 10, after a first and second warning. I, I refute you once, I refute you twice, and now we ask you to leave. Okay, that's able to teach. Okay, for an elder. It's not the same as what um, a non-elder would do in his home if he's teaching necessarily. You need to be aspiring towards that, or I shouldn't use aspire, uh, moving, growing in that direction. That would be good to be able to do, right? All right, let me keep going because we're going to run out of time. Uh, not addicted to wine, it means not alongside wine. Now we're into verse 3. Not alongside wine. It's interesting, he didn't say um, must not be drunk. <coughs> Obviously, uh, an elder should not be drunk. But this qualification is actually a, a little bit higher standard. It's a little bit tighter standard on him that he has to fit through. It just means that um, you don't want a man who's always found alongside the alcohol. And that's not necessarily drunkenness. But you don't want a man who's known as a drinker, always where the alcohol is, to be an elder. Why? Because he needs to be exemplary. It does not say... An elder must abstain. Okay? There is space between abstinence and not being alongside drink all of the time. And a man can choose to live between that space. And he needs to be temperate. And needs to be sensible. And needs to be respectable in how he does that. Okay? Um, Think carefully, guys, for yourself about perceptions that men, that others will have um, if you uh, choose to, to partake in drinking. Um, you can't control how people perceive your use of alcohol. I am not encouraging you to, be, to, be, to fear men and to fear their opinions. I, I want you to be sobered, though, by the fact that a young Christian who just came out of a, a enslavement to alcohol sees you enjoying, to the glory of God, a glass of wine or whatever. And you cannot control his perception of what he sees. Um, it would be awful if, if, a, if a man who is trying to justify his ungodly use of alcohol sees another Christian drinking and goes, yeah, they are, and so I'm okay. Now, we can't live in the fear of man, but what I would say we need to do is actually talk about what you're doing and what you're not doing. Or stop doing what you're doing. Or be care more careful where you do it. There's all kinds of things, wisdom, things here to be thinking about. Not pugnacious, verse 3. That literally means not a striker. Uh, it's a guy who's not ready to settle a conflict with violence or physical in intimidation. That would not go well for a shepherd to beat up the sheep. Okay? <laughs> um, an elder lives in a Petri dish 
um, for physical intimidation. And let me tell you why. Um, because the man who's going to uh, physically take action against another person is a man who already lives in conflict, is a man who's in disagreements, it's a man who gets sinned against, it's a man who gets disregarded, gets ignored sometimes, and I say welcome to eldering. That's involved in eldering, and so that's a petri dish. Um, so what you do with those things is everything. Um, if you do not biblically deal with the conflict, if you do not deal biblically with disappointments, with bitterness that uh, might set in, or with anger that might set in, if you have unconfessed sin after the conflict, because you're just mulling it over and mulling it over, and next thing you know, pride goes, who do they think they are? Disagree with me. Don't they know who I am? I'm an elder. Um, that man is a ticking time bomb. He is nitroglycerin. He is a an unstable cocktail that's going to explode at some point. Maybe not in a punch first, but you might hear a veiled threat from that guy. Uh, you might get yelled at by that guy, or the next thing you know, uh, that guy shoves somebody or throws a blow at somebody. And I want you to think about how devastating that will be for that man who does that. Listen, in a, in a conversation or in a counseling moment, you can lack gentleness as an elder and go, guys, I'm so sorry. That w I was not gentle in that. Will you please forgive me? And they'll go, of course. You can do that and it might be peaceable in a situation and people will forgive you. If you push a sheep or if you take a swing at a sheep once and go, guys, I'm so sorry. The sheep will never come near you again. I would tell sheep, stay away from that guy. This is one of those things that's probably a, a do or die moment. And so where the, the place to fight on this and to think about is not to first ask yourself, am I pugnacious? Have I ever hit anybody? I've never hit anybody. I think I'm qualified to be an elder. That's not the place to start at. The place to start at is what do I do after an injustice is committed against me? What am I like when um, I'm in conflict? What am I like after conflict? How do I handle disagreement? Those are the things to ask yourself and to measure because those are the roots that will determine whether or not you throw a blow at somebody or push or something. Gentle. Our English word carries with it the idea of softness and tenderness. We think of gentle being like a mother is with a child, and nothing wrong with that English-wise. Uh, the Greek probably leans more towards the idea of being fair or being moderate, and the gentleness that comes with being fair or moderate. Uh, I like the idea uh, that this word captures reasonable. He's a reasonable man, and, and therefore the, he's, a, he's a gentle man to get along with. He's a man who can be reasoned with. Um, you would contrast that with a man who operates on such strict justice and undue rigorousness that he won't take any appeals from anybody. There's no chance for more evidence here. No more appeals. That's not gentle in the way that the Greek looks at it. I, I, I cannot be reasoned with on this. I've made up my mind. That's not reasonable, right? So it's mild, fair, tolerant, considerate in that sense. Okay? Um, being an elder means you're going to have to wait sometimes in ways that's going to make you very uncomfortable. I need more evidence. I, I, need, I need more time to think about this. 
Are there other possible cases for me to consider? If I'm the type of man that I've always got my finger on the trigger and I'm cocked, loaded, ready to go, and I hear something and bang, before I even get it out of the holster, that's not gentle. It's also not sensible. It's also not temperate. But um, I have to be able to say, I, I can wait to hear. Proverbs eighteen seventeen. a man seems right until another one comes along and examines him. I need to take the time to examine so that I'm just not shooting from the hip. Um, receive appeals. If you never receive an appeal from your child, in fact, one of the ways that we tried to work even with our kids, you can practice this in your home. I'm, I'm not saying this is the right way to do it. I'm saying practice trying to be gentle in your home as a dad is if, if a child protested or had a question about what we uh, set out as a, as a mandate, um, we taught them the right way to do that. Um, say, Dad, can I make an appeal? An unreasonable man says, no, never. Um, that doesn't mean you have, if you say yes, make an appeal, it doesn't mean you have to do what the three-year-old says, or not three, five-year-old, 10-year-old, 13-year-old, 15-year-old. Listen. Be gentle in that sense. Be reasonable. Peaceable. Peaceable. It's uncontentious. This is a man who is not interested in turning everything into a battlefield. Oh my goodness. If you want that, just be on Twitter. Okay? And this is, this is our society, guys. Everything is turned into a battlefield and guns are drawn immediately and we're trying to kill each other. That's it. Elders cannot be that. They cannot be looking for always, I'm going to draw a line in the sand and divide Christians against each other and commence a battle. Uh, you have to be peaceable. That means whatever situation you step into, uh, whatever contention, whatever division, whatever disunity is going on, whatever heated argument is going on, an elder needs to be a man who can step into the middle of that and say, you know what? I know where peace is from here. Let's go. I know how to find peace in this situation. Let's go. Come with me. It means that if you are attacked, it means, um, or if you are in a contention with somebody, it means people can make peace with you. It means that, you, that you're not going to go up into some castle citadel and, and hide and say, I, there's no way, I'm not going to let you find me to make peace with me. This battle is going to rage some more. No, we are to be peaceable people in that way. And then free from the love of money. Um, if the man loves money above all things, then eldering, pastoring, shepherding will be a tool that he uses to get his love. Okay? And elders do come across money and oversee where money goes. And so you cannot be a man who loves money so, in other words, that for that guy, shepherding is not um, his love. It's a tool to get what he loves. And so you can't be that kind of guy. Uh, we just have, I, I just saw in the last couple of weeks, uh, one, one pastor who has a very prominent radio ministry um, is no longer a pastor. His salary was a million dollars a year, and he had another million dollar discretionary fund that the church gave him. The church did. That's not from his radio ministry. That's what the church gave him. Okay? Wow. Uh, there's another man. I'll use his name, Joel Osteen. Did you just see? He's worth $60 million. His house is an $11 million house, and he has twenty. He has a 20-car garage. Mm -hmm. And in one of those garages, I think he has, was it a Lamborghini or something? I forget what he's got. Um, 
Look, those are what you see from the outside. Those are not automatic indications of a love for money, but it just makes you ask the question, um, doesn't it? And by the way, are, are, the, are Christians supposed to be free from the love of money? All you have to do is turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be considered or conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. We are out of time. Verses 4 and 5. Let me just talk to you about those real quick. This is where you're now. Now it's the argument from the lesser to the greater. Uh, what is he like in this little household that is his own household? How does he shepherd there? Because if he can shepherd in a smaller household, there's a good chance that he can shepherd in a bigger household that is God's household. If he cannot shepherd in the little household, then he should not shepherd in the greater household. And that's um, Paul's statement here. Um, how you get your children to line up under you is everything because you can intimidate children to get under you. You can lie to them to get them under you. You can manipulate them. You can use silent treatment. You can, you can do all kinds of things to get them to line up under you, but you have to be able to do it with all dignity, okay? And you have to be able to manage them well. Um, and so that is um, an argument from the lesser to the greater. And then just to finish, verses 6 and 7, guys, um, I mentioned to you as I read them that those two qualifications, very interestingly, end with talking about the devil. Uh, that's a little sobering, isn't it? Uh, verse 6, he cannot be a new convert so that, he, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. Listen, there is a way to put a man in the office too soon such that um, his fall will make everybody think of the way that Satan fell. And you, you just don't want that. That's not good for the man. That's not good for the church. And there is another way to put a man in um, to ministry such that he walks around with a, a trap on his foot. And he's dragging it everywhere. He, he, he got caught in the snare of the devil. That's not good for him. That's not good for the church. Um, if the Holy Spirit is the one who makes overseers, the devil knows that and he is laying traps everywhere. And if an elder board gets desperate, we just don't have enough elders. But look at that young guy. Man, that guy was prominent in the community, but he became a Christian. What an influence he could have. Or he's a sports hero. He's got magical powers. <laughs> Let's make him an elder here. Um, we don't know what eldering is. We just need engaging people. We're desperate. I mean, you can start pulling in and grabbing young men and new believers and uh, those who don't have a good reputation outside the church. And next thing you know, uh, you've got the marks of the devil everywhere on that man and on the church. Um, now, did Jesus ever um, get some... Um, pushback from those outside of the faith. Yes, you must measure them carefully. Just because an unbeliever has a, uh, a case against a believer doesn't mean necessarily that you listen to it. Yeah, Bob's a terrible employee. He'll never lie for me. And you would take that charge against him and you'd say, praise God. Thank you so much for your time. I have needed to hear that. Okay. All right. We are out of time, guys. Thank you for letting me go about five minutes beyond. How about I pray and uh, we'll be done. 
Lord in heaven, thank you for your word again. Thank you for what um, it points us to, how it reveals you. And Lord, you have not left anything out. We have everything we need for life and for godliness for ourselves. We also have everything we need to know how the church should conduct itself. And again, Lord, I pray that at Grace Bible Church, you would um, raise up men who would aspire and desire the office of overseer and that you would help them to grow in qualification for um, that office. I pray that you would protect the elders of this church, that you would keep them, that you would hold on to them, and that they would diligently labor in your um, strength and in concert with you to hold on to their qualification. And Lord, I pray for men who will never see the office of overseer, that Lord, they would just um, be above reproach in the way they live. Lord, all of this would be so pleasing to you, and we need all of these kinds of men in a church so that the church can be strong and glorifying to you, pleasing to you. The gospel will rush forth from that kind of church into a lost world that desperately needs to hear of a crucified and risen Savior. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen.